The Lord be with you. Welcome to Thin Places, the podcast channel of St. Aidan's Anglican Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. I'm Father Lee, the pastor here at St. Aidan's, and I want to invite you to join me here each week as we join together to share common prayer, common worship, and common life. And just as the streams feed the trees on their banks till they pour in the seas, so may my life be to all those who share this wilderness road. A reading from the Gospel according to St. Luke in the 14th chapter. On one occasion, when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. When he noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit in the place of honor, in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, Give this person your place, and then, in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit at the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher, and then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He said also to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends and your brothers and your relatives and your rich neighbors, in case they might invite you in return and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are our strength and you are our Redeemer. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be world without end. Amen. I invite you to be seated and the kids can come forward for our, uh, for our discussion about the Nicene Creed. You guys can sit here with uh, Moira or you guys can sit here on the floor. That's fine too. All the kids that want to can come up to the front. We'll talk about the next part of the Nicene Creed, all right? All right. Look at all your faces. Hey, everybody. How you guys doing? <laughs> All right. So we're talking about the Nicene Creed, right? And every week we talk about the word creed. What does creed mean, Tully? Um, belief. Belief, that's right. And when we say believe, we mean we trust. trust. That's right. Saying the creed every week is us saying who God is and that we trust in Him. We trust in God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And now we're talking about the church. 
When we say that we trust in Jesus' church, what are we saying? Well, the first thing that we said is that the creed is sort of like something in our yard. What's it like in our yard? Moira? Like our fence. Like a fence, that's right. The fence tells us what is part of our yard and what's not part of our yard, right? And the creed helps us to tell what is part of Christianity and what is not part of Christianity. The creed tells us where we put our hope, our trust, and where we don't put our hope and our trust. So we've been talking about the church because the church reveals to us, it shows us where God's kingdom is. And so we need to know what the church is so that we know what our hope is, what our trust is. And we trust that the church is one. Right? That was the first thing we say, that it is one. And when we say that it is one, we mean that we all worship God together. Right? Do you guys remember that from a couple of weeks ago? The next thing we say is that the church is holy. That was last week. Do you guys remember what holy means? Why is the church holy? Who remembers? Do you remember? Because it has God. That's right. God is holy, and so God makes His church holy. Right? So the church is one because we worship God together. We put our trust in God. That makes us the church. And the church is holy because we belong to God. And that there's holy water inside here. There is holy water inside here, right? We set apart water, and we set apart salt, and we set apart food, and we say that this is part of God's kingdom too. And we set apart ourselves. We are a part of God's kingdom. We are holy also because we are part of the church. Now the next thing that we say is we believe that the church is holy, that it is one, and then we say that it is Catholic. Now, what does it mean when we say that the church is Catholic? Who's got a guess? What do you think? I don't know. You don't know? Who's got a guess? Anybody have a guess what we mean when we say every week that the church is Catholic? Hmm? Catholic is a word that means everywhere. We believe that the church is everywhere. That everywhere we go, we can find God's church. We can find God's kingdom. Now, I have a question for you guys. Are you ready? Who has ever felt left out? All the grown-ups are putting their hands up too. Right? Yeah. Is it fun to be left out? No. No. Is that a good feeling when you get left out? No. Right? Whether it's with your friends or or maybe at school or other things, it doesn't feel good to be left out, does it? Well, did you know that the same thing happened in the very, very beginning of the church? See, at the beginning of the church, there were people who lived in Jerusalem. That was where Jesus and his disciples were at the, at, at the time of Pentecost. And there were lots of people who were there who were all from one culture. But after the Holy Spirit showed up and the church began to grow, people from lots of cultures came in. But guess what? The people from all those other groups and nations and countries, they didn't feel like they were part of the in crowd. They didn't feel like they were part of the cool kids. They were feeling left out. And so do you know what the apostles did? Does anybody remember? This is right at the beginning of the book of Acts. Does anybody remember what the apostles did? The apostles went to each one of those groups that were feeling left out, and they appointed somebody from that group to be a leader in the church. And their job would be to make sure that no one was left out. Do you know what we call the people in the early church and today who are leaders in the church who make sure that nobody gets left out? Churches? Churchists, not quite. Tully? I don't know what that means. Arch. 
We call those people deacons. Do we have, like Deacon Jesse and like Deacon Ginny, we have deacons in our church today. And their job, just like it was then, is to make sure that no one gets left out, that nobody gets forgotten, that everyone in our church is taken care of. Alright? Now, it's the same for us today. Our deacons dress a little bit differently, right? And maybe we talk a little bit differently, and maybe we we live our lives a little bit differently, but here's what's true. Every week we say we believe that God's church is everywhere, that it is Catholic. And it's everywhere because Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, is everywhere. Every week when we start our service, right after we do the confession, we say John 3.16. And what is the beginning of John 3.16? For God so loved the people in Nicholasville. The, the, the world. The world, that's right. Not one place, not one people, not one family, not one group. For God so loved the world. That's the way that the gospel begins. The story of Jesus begins with God loving the world. So we all belong to each other. We all belong to the church. That's what Catholic means. When we say that we believe the church is Catholic, what we're saying is that we believe that we all, because of our baptism, belong to each other. Everyone here belongs. Everyone here has their needs met. Everyone here gets taken care of. Nobody gets left behind. Nobody gets forgotten. In the church, we care for each other and we protect each other and we provide for each other because that's what God does. Yes? I mean, is that true? But I used to think that the devil still had good in him. Yeah. It's not true. It's not true. But sometimes we think that, don't we? Yeah. yeah. I mean, devil still was was an angel. He was. Uh huh. But no. Why? Okay. <laughs> so every week we say that we believe the church is. One, that we worship together. We worship one God. Every week we say we believe the church is holy. And that means that we belong to God. And every week we say we believe the church is Catholic. And Catholic means we all belong to each other. Alright? Let's pray. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy immortal one, have mercy upon us. Alright, thank you guys. You can go sit down. The study of semantics is a study about how language works, and particularly it's about how language works in a particular place or a particular time. And there's a fascinating thing that that people who study semantics look at, and that is the phenomenon of untranslatable words. The idea that sometimes cultures communicate very complex ideas in very simple words, and when you translate those simple words into another language, the meaning doesn't convey because the, the, the meaning of those words is so complex. All right? 
Now, we've talked about some, some words that are like that. Sometimes it's because the words are idioms, okay? If something was weird, if something suspicious was, was, was happening in, in our culture, we would say, ah, uh, something's fishy. Now, can you imagine translating that into another, in, into another culture and then saying to somebody, something's fishy, and they would start you know, smelling things and looking for something that's dirty somewhere? If you were in Sweden, you wouldn't say it smells fishy. You would say, I suspect owls. <laughs> but it means the same thing. But if you translate that into English, we go, what do you mean you suspect owls? Like, are there, are, is there a bird somewhere? Where did it go? Right? But sometimes they're not just idioms. Sometimes they're even more complex than that. So, for instance, we've talked before about the Dutch word huga. Right? You guys remember talking about that before? It's a, it's a word that means the feeling that you have when you are surrounded by loved ones, sitting in front of a fire, reading a good book, and bundled up in blankets on a cold night. All of those things together, lumped together in this one word, huga. Can you imagine translating that into English? Just one single word and translating all of that? But it's not just, it's not just Dutch, okay? So in, in Spain, they have this word, uh, sobre mesa, which just means across the table, okay? But what it means is, after you've finished a meal, before all of the dishes get cleared away, sitting there with the people who are at the table, just being together and sharing a conversation. It's the conversation that happens after a meal before anybody gets up. Nobody gets up. They just stay sitting at the table and continuing to talk. One word that means this whole conversation that's happening. Or in German, I found this wonderful one this week. In German, you have, uh, if you get mad, if, if you make somebody mad and you buy them a gift as a way of saying that you're sorry, that gift is called Drachenfutter, which means dragon fodder. And you give this person a gift, and it's supposed to appease them, right? Like a, like a gift for a dragon. But my absolute favorite one that I learned this week is in Finnish. And the word is poronkusema. Now, in this one, is interesting because it's actually a unit of measurement in, in Finnish. Poronkusema. It's, it's, it, it measures approximately seven and a half kilometers. And you might think to yourself, why would you need a special word to designate four and four, seven and a half kilometers. Because seven and a half kilometers is the distance if you are starting on a journey that your reindeer needs to stop to pee. And they have a word for that, which is poronkusema. Now, of course, other languages aren't the only ones that do that. Like in English, one of the most famous examples is the word serendipity. It is... Very, very difficult to translate the word serendipity into any other language. Because we might say, well, it means a happy accident, but not exactly. It means a happy accident that flies in the fate of fate. Fl- flies in the face of fate. It's a ve- you can see, like, if you try to nail it down into one specific thing and then turn that into another language. Put that into another context. That's the trouble with these words. Sometimes words by themselves have very complicated definitions. And they have a lot of images and ideas that are all tied together in one word. That makes perfect sense in the culture that it comes from. But doesn't always make sense in the culture that we live in now. And as you have probably guessed. The next fruit of the spirit is one of those words. So the word for the, it, it doesn't matter. You guys don't care about the word. The word gentle in, in, in the New Testament does not mean 
gentle the way that we mean gentle. So when we say that one of the fruits of the Spirit is gentleness, we don't mean that you just go around very softly and you, know, you, you, don't, you don't make any ripples and you don't make any waves. It doesn't mean that. But in our culture, that kind of is what gentleness means. Right? Or we might, it sometimes gets translated as meekness. But again, when we use the word meek, we very rarely mean it in a positive way. Right? Do you think about people that you have described as meek and that was a compliment? Not usually. Usually it means somebody who's weak. And oftentimes, mousy, yeah. It, it means somebody who is diminutive, somebody that you don't have to take seriously. Like we use the words meekness and gentleness as sort of a sideways compliment. It's a compliment, but it's also a put down at the same time. But that's not what this word means. But translating this word into English is extremely difficult. Because when, when Aristotle took this word, what he said is that this word is the mean between excessive anger and excessive angerlessness. That's what this word means. It means not too angry and not not angry enough. In the ancient Greek, it was used to describe very strong animals like a bull or an ox or a stallion who was under control. Sometimes it was used to describe a soothing wind or a healing balm that was put on a, on a fiery wound. So this word isn't about not making waves. It's about humility. It's about being free from malice. Not being controlled by our rage, not being controlled by our anger, but instead being free. And so it's tied very closely to humility. In fact, when St. James is writing his letter to, to the churches that are under his care, and he's explaining to them the destructive power of the tongue, this is the word that he says, this gift of the Spirit, meekness, gentleness, humility, is the word that he says is the only fruit of the Spirit that can control the tongue. This is the only thing that brings the tongue under control, St. James tells us. There's a pastor and an author named Ray Stedman, and in one of his books where he's talking about the fruits of the Spirit, he describes this, this word meekness, and he explains that it has the, the same problems that we've talked about before, that it has a negative connotation for us, and he, he says that what it means is power under control. That's what this word in Greek means. It means controlled power. Power that is not out of control. Power that is not wanton. Power that is not rampant. But power that is metered. That is meted out in the correct way. And he says this because he says that power, that strength, isn't something that needs to prove itself. That's not how strength works. Strength doesn't have to prove itself to be strong. If somebody has to continually prove to you that they are strong and in power, it's usually because they're not. Right? The biggest and the loudest and the strongest people are usually the, 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 most, uh, the, the most fearful people who are in the room. People who are really in control, people who really have power, don't have to prove it to you. They simply have it. That is this word, meekness. That's this word, gentleness. It's about humility. And that is what brings us back directly to the gospel lesson from today. You guys remember that in this story, 
Jesus has been invited to one of the house, one of the homes of the Pharisees, and a bunch of the Pharisees show up because they want to see what it is that he does. And he goes to their house to share a meal on the Sabbath. And when he gets near to the house, there is a man who is ill. And Jesus heals him. And it begins this discussion of, well, why is healing happening on the Sabbath? That's, that, that's not what God wants us to do. We don't do work on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the Lord's day. And Jesus rebukes them. And then having rebuked them, he tells them this parable. When you're invited to someone's house for a special feast, like a wedding feast, don't go up and sit down at the place of honor. Now, usually when we go to a big feast, right, we have typically when, when you go to a wedding feast, there are round tables that are scattered around in a banquet hall, right? And then up at the front is the bridal party and they're all sitting at a table. Tables in Jesus' world are sort of like that. Usually you would go into a large reception room and there would be a table that was on, uh, on an elevated uh, platform. Uh, sometimes it would be kind of like ours where it's just a couple of, you know, two little half steps up, but it would be elevated and there would be a table that was sitting there where the host and his most important guests would all sit. And by sit, I mean they had pillows and they would all lay on the floor. Uh, and then all of the other tables were sort of arranged around the room. And the farther away from that high table, that head table you got, the lower your social status was. And Jesus says to this room full of people who are Pharisees, people who imagine themselves to be rulers. They imagine themselves to be strong and powerful. They come inside and they sit down at the front. But here's what we skip over sometimes when we read this story. This man who needs to be healed comes into the door and Jesus heals him. And what does that mean? When Jesus came into the room, Jesus who had been invited to this meal by a Pharisee, Jesus was sitting next to the door. When Jesus came into the room, he sat next to the door and what happened? The people who were at the door came to him and he met them there. And then the people who were rich and powerful and prominent in the community, who were all sitting at the other end of the room, started saying, what is Jesus doing back over there? What's happening? What's going on over there? What's he doing? They missed the point. And so Jesus turns to them and he says, when you come to an important feast, don't sit down at the front of the room, but instead sit next to the door. If you go up to the front of the room and then somebody who's more important than you shows up, the host is going to come up to you and say, I'm very sorry, but I'm going to need you to go sit at the back of the room. And then you have to stand up from the place where you're laying up on the stage in front of everybody and walk the whole length of the room back to one of the unoccupied seats, the farthest away from that high table, because nobody who is already comfortable on the floor in front of you is going to get up and make space for you. So you go all the way to the end of the room. But if you arrive at a place and the host recognizes you, he's going to invite you. He's going to say, oh, you're sitting in the back. Come sit with me. And you will come up to the front and sit down next to him. We miss a lot of the the back and forth in this conversation because shame and honor aren't resources. They aren't values that we have uh, as, as cultural controllers in, in the world that we live in. But in Jesus' world, this idea of, of gaining or losing honor was almost the same as if you had... It, it would be like if we were telling the story now, it would be, listen, if you show up at your job and you, you start, you know, 
sucking up to the boss. He's going to send you down to the basement, and that's where you're going to work from now on. He's just going to move your office because you're obnoxious. But listen, if you show up and you do your job well, and you do it correctly, and you're helpful and pleasant to the people around you, that boss is going to come to you, and he's going to give you a promotion, and you're going to have an office up on the top floor. right? If we, if we just adjust that, we, we can then say, oh, I see what Jesus is trying, to, is trying to say, that it's about my attitude. It's about the way that I understand myself. It's about humility. It's about recognizing that it's not my job when I come into a room full of people to make sure that all of the eyes are on me. It's not my job to get all of the attention. I should make sure that the person in the room who needs attention is getting getting attention. But then Jesus overturns our assumptions about who's supposed to be getting attention. He says, when you throw a party yourself, Don't invite all of those rich guys sitting up there on the dais. Instead, go out to the gates and bring in all of the people who need help. Now Jesus is starting to overturn our values too. We thought we were getting away with it because, you know, we don't throw parties exactly the way that Jesus throws parties. uh, And the people in Jesus' world threw parties. But now, Jesus is going from preaching to meddling. All right? He says, when you go out, go out and gather the people who can't pay you back. People who can't give you honor. And instead, honor those people. He says, when you invite guests, I want you to go and find the people who are at the margins and bring them in. Because that's what we see Jesus doing in that feast. He goes out to the door. He goes out to the people who are left outside, who are waiting from the scraps on the table, and he brings them in, and he heals them, and gives them place, and gives them prominence. He gives them names, and identity, and honor. That's what Jesus does. And for Jesus' disciples, people who are following our Lord, people who are shaping our lives after the Lord, that's what we're being invited into as well. To live lives that reflect the kind of grace that we have received. So it's worthwhile to sit and to ask that question. Where are the places in my own life where I go and I sit myself down at the head of the table? Where are the places where I am seeking uh, attention? Where I am seeking honor? Where I want people to validate me? Where are the places where I'm trying to make sure that everybody in the room is paying attention to me? And where are the places in my life where I want to make sure that the right kind of people are around me? Where are the places where I am privileging those who have power, for those who have wealth? Where am I privileging the people who I can get something out of? And where are those low tables in my life? Where are the the tables of people who sit farthest away from the high table? Where are the people in my life that I put at the back of the room? Where are the people in my life that I consider them or those? The people that I push to one side. The people that I talk about as though they were less. Who are the people in the margins that I might be ignoring? And that is a worthwhile spiritual exercise for all of us to engage in this week. But that's not the end of the story. In fact, that's not the gospel as Jesus is proclaiming it. The gospel is this. You 
are the ones standing at the door. In spite of all of the stories that we tell about ourselves and the, the self-important aggrandizing ways that we, that, that, that we imagine ourselves in the story, you are the ones standing at the door. Every single one of us is standing at the door. And Jesus comes to the door and draws us inside. And he invites us to sit down at his table. Jesus, the groom, comes to us in the darkness and raises us up and brings us in and calls us his own. That's the gospel. And it's important for us to recognize that there are places in our lives where we arrange the relationships that we have with the people who are around us based in, in order of, of uh, you know, convenience. Or where we arrange people in, in order of what they can do for me. It's important for us to recognize that because where that happens in our lives, we are walking away from the table that Jesus is inviting us into. But it is most important for every single one of us today to recognize that Jesus, in spite of all of those reasons that we should be left standing outside alone in the dark, left in our disease and our poverty, have been brought into the home of our Lord. Have been called family. Have been invited next to His table. That's who you are. You belong to Jesus. You belong here. This is the place where healing happens. This is the place where we are restored. This is the place where we are given honor. And that's why we reject the gospel when we imagine ourselves to be powerful. When we imagine ourselves to be strong and influential, we're saying, no, I am something on my own in spite of who Jesus is. Instead of saying, this is who I am. I am a child of the King. I am called His beloved. He has called me to Himself. That's who we are. And anything else is false heirs. Anything else is a story that we're telling about ourselves that's not true. Because it has to be enough for us to simply be Jesus' people who sit here together at His table. That's what gentleness is about. That's what meekness is about. That's what humility is about. It's about this right here being enough. That what I have as a child of the Father, that what I have as the beloved of Christ, that what I have as the temple of the Holy Spirit is enough. And knowing that that's enough to go out to the doorstep and find the people who remain on the margins. To find the people who are still beyond our reach. To find the people in our homes and in our families, the people who are in our neighborhoods and our workplaces, the people who are in our communities who are still there at the margin, and to go to those people and to draw them in to the feast of the King, to draw them near to the Lord, to draw them near to the place where God pours out His grace continually for the ones that He loves. And every single week we say this, hear the words of Christ, the words of comfort that Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. But this is the full verse. Come to me all who are laboring and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. For I am gentle. That's what Jesus says to us. I am gentle. Take my yoke on your shoulder, this yoke of gentleness. This yoke of faith, of hope, and of love. I am gentle and lowly in heart. And this is the promise that Jesus gives to us, that if we will simply come to him and receive that same yoke of gentleness and lowliness, that we will find peace. That's Jesus' promise to us today, that we will find peace. And with it, we will find patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. He's calling us to himself to become meek because he is meek. He's calling us to himself to receive who we are and to become who we receive. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for checking out Thin Places today. If you were blessed by your time with us and want to know more, check out anchor.fm forward slash thin dash places for more homilies, devotionals, and worship from St. Aidan's Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. And make sure to follow us and leave a comment And join us again next time in common prayer, common worship, and common life. The peace of the Lord be always with you. Father is restored.